Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The pandemic severely hampered the availability of meat because large meat processing facilities were subject to numerous closures. The problem persists to some degree as the virus continues to affect workers. But the Biden administration hopes $1 billion in federal aid will help the meat supply chain problem by supporting smaller, more diverse meat processors, including tribal operations. We'll hear how independent native-owned meat processors are preparing to utilize the funds, coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A large data center could be built near Polson, Montana in the coming years. As Aaron Bolton reports, the proposal was pitched during a technology summit last week. Entrepreneur Kevin O'Leary, also known as Mr. Wonderful on the TV show Shark Tank, announced at the summit held in Bozeman his investment firm is working with the Bitcoin mining company BitZero and the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes to potentially build the data center. The demand for these centers is insatiable all around the world. And the states that have figured this out, that have good policy, have wind, have hydro, have solar. This is the future. O'Leary said the center could provide services to Bitcoin miners and data storage for other web-based services. Most of the power to the facility would come from the Salish Kootenai Dam south of Polson on the Flathead Reservation. CSKT Tribal Council Secretary Martin Charlo says the tribes are interested in the jobs the center could provide for locals. Our tribes have always been a people of vision, and I believe that Kevin and um, Mr. Danes and, and Governor Gianforte and Akbar um, are all bringing uh, this great vision to us. While the tribes say they haven't committed to the project, they'll continue looking into the data center to see if it's a viable business opportunity. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. A candlelight vigil is planned Monday night in front of the White Mountain Apache Police Department in Arizona for fallen officer Adrian Lopez, who was killed during an officer-involved shooting last week on the Fort Apache Reservation. According to police, Lopez was conducting a traffic stop Thursday night when an altercation occurred between the officer and the person operating the vehicle. Lopez was fatally shot during the altercation. The suspect then took his police vehicle and fled the scene. The suspect was pursued by police and was involved in a gun battle where the suspect was killed. Another officer was shot and transported to a Phoenix hospital for treatment. A memorial has been set up for Lopez in front of the White Mountain Apache Police Department. Lopez started with the department in January. His family flew in from California over the weekend and told ABC 15 they're grateful to the community for their support and plan to take Lopez back home to the L.A. area. Meanwhile, the Navajo Nation is providing law enforcement assistance. Ten Navajo police officers took the oath of office from a White Mountain Apache judge last week, which allows them to patrol and perform public safety duties on the Fort Apache Reservation while the tribe mourns the loss of Officer Lopez. The tribe is also receiving city, county, state, and federal support. 
The Cherokee Nation and the U.S. Mint are hosting a public event Monday to celebrate the release of the Wilma Mankiller Quarter. The quarter is one of five designs for the first coins in the American Women Quarters program. The four-year program highlights the accomplishments and contributions of trailblazing American women, including in areas of civil rights, government, humanities, science, space, and the arts. Mankiller was the first woman elected principal chief of the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma and a well-known advocate for Native Americans and women's rights. The coin's design depicts Mankiller with a resolute glaze wrapped in a shawl and the seven-pointed stars of the Cherokee Nation. The inscriptions on the coin in English are United States of America, Wilma Mankiller, and Principal Chief. The coin's inscription of the Cherokee Nation is in the Cherokee syllabary. The release of the Mankiller Quarter is the third coin in the program. The celebration is taking place in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. The U.S. Mint and the National Women's History Museum will hold a film screening and panel discussion on Mankiller in Washington, D.C. on Friday. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The pandemic derailed the supply chain of meat to consumers because COVID-19 outbreaks kept shutting down processing plants. The situation exposed a weakness in the system that relies on a few big companies controlling a vital food resource. To some degree, those meat suppliers are still struggling to keep up with demand. The federal government is hoping to help offset the problem with $1 billion in ARPA funds to expand independent meat processing capacity. That means tribes have even more opportunities to start or strengthen their own meat processing facilities. In this hour, we'll hear from Native agriculture advocates about how being able to process bison, beef, or pork in or near Native communities could be a boon for tribal food sovereignty and economics. Please join our conversation today by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us today from Jemez Pueblo, New Mexico, is Roger Frawa. He's the executive director of the Flower Hill Institute, the technical assistance coordinator for USDA's Meat and Poultry Processing Capacity Program. He's Jemez Pueblo. Roger, welcome back to Native America Calling. Sean, always happy to spend time with you and Native America Calling. It's, it's where I get my news on Native America, so appreciate you and uh, what you all do. Uh, for keeping us all informed and connected here in Indian country, especially during these very difficult times. So, yeah, really honored to be here and spend time with you. Well, Roger, I sure do appreciate those warm words and, and great to hear that we are a main source of news for you there at Amos Pueblo. 
And Roger, the big news we're talking about today, of course, is this $1 billion investment uh, from the American Rescue Plan, the, the funds from that uh, <clears throat> American Rescue Plan to expand independent meat and poultry processing. And this is really exciting. And please give us some background, though. Why do we need more independent processors, not just in Native communities, but across the U.S. as well? Well, you know, I think we can all remember. I mean, it seems like, um, you know, almost like a lifetime ago because, you know, I, I, you know, you heard about Tulsa time, you know, the country song Tulsa time. And, and I think there's mm -hmm. something going to be framed. I think we're going to be framing a reference to our contemporary life. And we're going to be talking about COVID time. You know, I think COVID brought out the best and worst in humanity to include Indian country um, and just amazing stories um, of just resiliency and just trying to, figure out, you know, how do we, in these lockdowns, you know, our community, our tribal leaders, our, our cultural leaders, first of all, I mean, giving credit to them, and then instructing our secular leaders um, to really work hard to keep our community safe. We had checkpoints, one entrance in, one entrance out, and during the early uh, years of uh, COVID, you know, none of us uh, around the planet, we had no idea what this was and, and what was going to happen. And um, so to keep ourselves in quarantine as an entire community. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, Indian country, the 577 federally recognized American Indian tribes geographically spread across 33 states, uh, representing, you know, you know, a little bit more than 3 million Native American people that are growing at a population rate of 4% per year or doubling every 18 years or 20 years or so. Sean, the tribal leadership has an immense responsibility on their shoulder, whether they're elected or appointed, They've got a huge responsibility at times like this to keep our community safe. And in the community, we have a responsibility then to adhere and listen to and follow the directives of our community leaders to, to stay safe. And so, you know, our community was not extreme. I think we were like many other uh, tribal communities around the, um, around the country that were allowed to go out once a week, you know, with somebody under 65, over 18, uh, for four hours, go quickly do your shopping. And when they got there, what was the first thing that you remember, Sean, was toilet paper. You know, of all things, it's like, oh, there's a shortage of toilet paper. Like, what is that about? And then the next thing we heard about was a shortage of meat. And the, and the shortage of meat is, I'm sitting here in Hamas, I'm looking out over a 100,000 acre ranch, if you want to call it that, you know, our reservation land. And I know we have cattle. We have excellent cattle producers. And we've got some young, innovative people, uh, um, you know, John, uh, John Romero and, and those kinds of folks that are trying new and innovative practices that are more sustainable. We have lots of farmers that have just do it the way that their grandfathers have done it, which is, which is great and fine. But I'm looking at meat, and I'm looking at meat with horns and hooves, right? But we can't turn, we can't turn cattle into meat. There's a process there to be able to do that. And I think we learned so much about meat and meat processing and the demand for meat um, because I think when the government, churches, states, others, philanthropic organizations were uh, delivering food to my community and to Indian country alongside that, you know, we were like at the mercy of whomever was able to get us meat. It made me think back, Sean, about my grandfather's generation where they would just string up, you know, um, uh, an animal and do their own butchering their own way and with their own refrigeration or drying techniques mostly, were able to capture cattle and turn it into meat. And that's on a family by family basis.
Now mm-hmm. we need to think more large scale on a regional basis or a community basis. And that's what that's what this is really all about. And I want to give. Okay. Go ahead. Well, Roger, I just wanted to comment on that because I, I think we so many of us have those family histories of, of being ranching families and ag families and producing our own meat and butchering and things like that, and having a meat house out back. But uh, it's really shocking when we learn that there are four large corporate meat processing operations and they control what, like 80 percent of the entire industry. So why is the meat processing industry? Why is it so exclusive? And why do we have just this, essentially a monopoly of these large corporate interests that are controlling so much of our meat supply? Sean, I think it's a lot like if you look at the power industry, like the electric power, you know, that's very monopolistic, either state utility or investor owned utility, but that's not for faint of heart. I mean, not anybody can just, you know, walk in and and create a, a power system. You know, there's all kinds of certification, training, you know, responsibilities and rights and those kinds of things. Meat, I'm learning, is no different. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not for somebody to go out there and try it out. Because you go out there and try it out, somebody gets, you know, meat that's um, somehow not processed correctly. And, boy, you've got a lot of sick people on your hands. So the certifications that go into this, the um, the kind of uh, programs and training that goes into meat and meat processing – um, I, I can see now that the four big uh, processors um, really do their best to try and keep us all fed. It's the, gr- it's the groups behind that on a regional basis and on a tribal basis. The Osage Nation, the Wasaji out of Oklahoma, they built a meat processing plant in seven months. It was the most amazing thing during COVID, by the way. It was the most amazing mm-hmm. thing to happen. And when they said they're going to try to do this, well, this is I, I was telling the tribal leaders, you don't try this. Either you're going to burn your ship and go do it, or you're not going to do it. You're either going to succeed (laughs) or you're going to fail, right? And they did it. It was the most amazing thing. Jeffrey Standing Bear and his great people there, they built a meat process. I stood in a mud puddle, and, uh, you know, seven months later, I was standing inside a USDA-certified meat processing plant that feeds their people now. It's an amazing thing. It's amazing. But it is amazing. And I definitely... And I definitely want to talk more about some of these success stories, like you mentioned there at Osage. So the idea here is that there is this huge need for independent meat processors. So the federal government has this plan, a billion dollars to go out there and promote competition and locally sourced uh, suppliers and processors, and just to create a more equitable system for how American consumers are able to access and purchase beef. So tell us more about Flower Hill Institute's role in supporting these efforts. So Flower Hill, Flower Hill Dot Institute, our most amazing board of director who are the kind of the who's who in my mind of Indian country. They've all formerly elected leaders, not only sat on, but chaired national Indian organizations are currently working with regional tribal organizations. This group directs us in the most positive way around youth indigenous knowledge, STEM camps, um, uh, climate resiliency and agriculture on the agriculture piece, you know, this meat processing is kind of a big deal, not just for Indian country, because we serve well beyond Indian country, we serve the country. And um, so what we aim to do with this meat and poultry processing capacity, we are a technical assistant hub, and we have great resources and Chris Roper and Dave Carter, and they put together this amazing team of really subject matter experts that help Indian country and beyond uh, to have access to robust technical assistance, uh, financial uh, resources coming from USDA, 
to help them go through the grant program and to be competitive in that. Uh, so it's um, the kind of the four areas is the federal grant application management, business development, financial planning, meat and poultry processing, uh, operational support, and then supply chain development. That's, we concierge anybody that calls us tribes uh, and Indians alike uh, to uh, these pre-award application processes to get them to post-award grant management compliance. We try and help them. And, and that really is our mission. And it's, it's really headed by the most capable people, Chris Roper and Dave Carter. I've been watching these guys for years. They're amazing. Okay. Yeah. And we're going to talk more with Chris and Dave both later in the show. So Roger, as I understand it, phase one will invest approximately $150 million to kind of galvanize what they estimate at 15 of these projects to build these uh, meat processing facilities and related infrastructure. So that's a pretty selective group. Uh, I'm interested in learning more about how tribes will be selected as grantees and how that's all going to work. We are going to have to take a short break here in just another minute, though. But when we come back, I want to learn a little bit more about that process, how these grants are going to work, who is eligible, what the competition is like for that. And then once uh, a project is actually awarded, um, you know, how will they work with Flower Hill? You gave us a little bit of background in terms of some of the technical assistance that will come into play, but I'd like to learn a little bit more about how that will work. We have a lot of folks that listen to the show that are ranchers that have agriculture backgrounds, and I'm sure they'd, they'd love to, to learn more about how they might potentially participate the, in this program or their communities as well. So anybody listening today with a question or a comment, 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. You're listening to Native America Calling, and we'll be back right after this short break. The federal government wrongfully took thousands of acres from the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe 70 years ago. Now, after decades of work and a unique collaboration, the tribe is getting some 12,000 acres back. We'll learn about the history of the land and how determined tribal officials work to resolve the error. That's on the next Native America Calling. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strongheart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strongheart's Native Helpline. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking about meat processing in Native America. With about a billion dollars allocated to supporting smaller local meat producers, we could start seeing more tribally processed meat. Have you been impacted by slowdowns in meat distribution? Do you enjoy a good locally sourced ribeye? Join our discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to now bring in Chris Roper, who is speaking with us from South Central Missouri. He is one of the directors of regional technical assistance for the Flower Hill Institute. Chris, great to have you on the show. 
Thank you, and I'm glad to be here and uh, you know, look forward to uh, participating in our conversation today. Absolutely. And tell me, uh, what are you hearing from Native ranchers about this exciting new program, the Meat and Poultry Processing Capacity Program? Are they excited? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's so many new programs coming out and that have came out. Uh, you know, it, it's truly hard to keep up with all of them. And, you know, that makes it more exciting for us to, you know, have our roots back with, with the, the, the tribes and, and to have all of our contacts that we've had over the last several years and to have the great relationships through Flower Hill. And we're able to share information uh, with, with the tribes all across the country. And, uh, you know, it, it's truly amazing to be able to assist groups through the process, uh, you know, make sure they're aware of the new programs when they come out, answer questions when they come up about the grants or, you know, even particular grants about or particular questions about, you know, how to fill out the grants or what has to be included in a grant. Or, you know, we, we try to help through operations, uh, through the development of the facilities. And, you know, we, we really try to be a one-stop turnkey uh, resource for, for everyone to call upon and and use our history and our knowledge to to help tribes develop these new facilities okay and before we went to break i i, I mentioned i just want to make sure that information is correct 150 million dollars to kind of jump start about 15 projects so is that accurate are tribes going to be competing uh with other types of processors non-native as well for what appears to be a pretty select group of potential projects well, and that criteria got widened for the MPEP round one grant process. Um, the, the, the pool, the funding pool was still $150 million, but they did open it up. Uh, it, it was open to meat process, meat and poultry processing nationwide, uh, all across the United States. And we saw about 180 technical assistance requests, uh, from all across the nation, from Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, um, and most of the 48 states. So uh, there's really a wide group of participants in this program. And round one has closed, and there were over 250 applicants with over $900 million worth of projects requests. So there's a lot of development in meat processing right now. And there will be a fun two for this MPET program that should be coming out later this summer. Okay. And of those 250 applicants you just mentioned, do you know how many of those are native applicants? I do not have those statistics right now. We hope to have that in the near future, but it's not available uh, as of today. Okay. So Flower Hill can assist tribes throughout all stages of this program, helping them write an initial grant application for funding and then actually helping them implement the project all the way soup to nuts, right? That's right. We, we can help uh, all through the process. And then even uh, we find in early stages of these developments that some tribes just need assistance on trying to figure out what products they want to make or what animals they want to process and how far do you take that. Do you do the slaughter operation through added value? Do you make some added value products? Do you do, you do some cooking or dehydrating? Uh, we want to help, uh, you know, through that process as well to help decide 
what is important to that tribe and, and what they feel is necessary to do in their own facility to feed their own communities. So, you know, e- each operation will dictate certain pieces of equipment or it could be packaging for maybe retail packaging or maybe it's packaging for a facility that they intend on using their meat. We really need to dive into all of those specifics so that we can help uh, do facility layouts, do budgeting, figure operational costs, uh, figure out how many employees they're going to need. Uh, we can help through okay. job description. Uh, we, we can help with all that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a lot of working parts, obviously, with these types of projects. And, and Chris, small scale processing, um, that's not new. I mean, this has been tried before and with limited success. So what makes this uh, such a challenging proposition for tribes? What, what, what are they up against to make this work successfully? Well, labor is a big one. Um, you know, funding upfront can be a, a barrier as well. Uh, this equipment is expensive. Uh, it's it's a hard market to find used equipment in as well. Uh, but labor, this is a hard job. Uh, it's very physical, uh, demanding. Uh, you know, a lot of times you're working in cold temperatures uh, every day. So you know, if it's 100 degrees outside, uh, some some think of that as being nice to go into a refrigerator and work inside a refrigerator. You know, or vice versa when it's winter time outside. Uh, they're still going into a room that's 38 or 40 degrees to to perform their work every day. So it's physically demanding. These these carcasses are heavy, uh, and uh, it's it's a hard job. So people have to be in it for the right reasons. They have to be willing to work. Uh, and, and you know, for tribes, it's it's even more important to know where your food comes from. Um, uh, a lot of the farm to table programs, people really care about where their food comes from, how it's cared for. Uh, what what medicines may be put into that animal, but you know we should all care about what we're eating, where it comes from, and how it's treated, and that's really the importance that these tribes can control once they have their own processing on their land. Yeah, I think so many of us are, are really paying a lot more. I know I am at, at our house. We're paying a lot more attention to where our food's coming from. And uh, Chris, a lot of times you hear when projects like this, visions like this go up against large corporate interests, they don't enjoy the same economies of scale, right? They can't produce, they can't purchase large volumes of cattle, they can't pay for huge, huge facilities, and um, they can't put the kind of investment that large corporations can. So how, how will tribes compete with the likes of these huge, huge corporate interests, these these four companies, which primarily dominate the industry. Well, and it's uh, I tell everyone it's not about competing with those big four. You should not ever try to compete with those guys. It's not the same market. Um, they do have a lot of scale uh, that these small plants cannot will not compete with. But what you are able to do is you're able to secure your food sources for your community, your tribe, and your people. Uh, and, and each tribe has to determine what level they're trying to serve. If that's just your tribe members, is that your employees, or is that the entire community in which you live? Uh, so the scales are, are modified based on what a tribe's goals are. So on, on small-scale production, you might think of it as more of a uh, you know custom butcher shop that that you know exists in in many different areas, but the inspection becomes the uh, tipping point as far as 
how they want to sell product. Do they want to retail product? Do they want to serve this food in schools? So all these questions have to be asked to determine what levels of inspection these, these small plants are going to serve. Uh, and, and in a lot of states, it's going, to, it's going to be USDA inspected, which means it can cross state lines. It can be retailed in grocery stores. It can be served in schools. But you need a okay. certain level of inspection so that you can do these kind of things. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot different than just a custom butcher shop that a family might take an animal into, have it butchered, and then take that meat back to their home to consume themselves. Those products are, are labeled not for resale when you do it in a custom environment like that. Okay. And it sounds like what we're going for here with a lot of these tribal ventures is, is a niche market. So they're not necessarily, like you said, don't compete against Tyson Foods and these big heavyweights. Uh, it, it's, it's a different market. It's a different approach. And again, all tying into this food sovereignty. So I want to talk more about that. But before we do, we have a caller, Evan, listening in Hopi in Arizona on KUYI. Evan, thanks for calling the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, I just had a couple of questions, you know, and um, about the meat industry. Um, I know the animals out here are grass-fed and more open range on the reservation. Um, that's where the bigger companies like Tyson, they have them on a big, you know, farm, farm uh, industrial area where they're pretty much fed corn. And there's a, I think there's a big difference between grass-fed and corn-fed. And because of the animal is more of a dietary grass eater than a corn, because corn actually, I'm pretty sure, fans up the cow and, uh, you know, makes a good marbling. But I know it does bring on diseases and um, health benefits for the animal. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, um, what kind of differences do we see in uh, the reservation um, meat markets versus, you know, out there in the industrial marketing and, and okay. do they bring these type of, um, you know, awareness about uh, the cow's um, health and the benefits, you know, of um, it being a grass-fed animal versus a cow, uh, corn-fed animal? Evan, those are really good questions, comments, and we sure appreciate um, all of your insights, your questions. So I'm going to go ahead and let Chris respond to that. Chris, Evan asks about, you know, some of these intricacies, corn-fed versus grass-fed cattle, uh, is that a, a big issue and something that with your technical assistance, you're able to consult with tribes and ranchers and processors so they can, um, you know, really bring the best products to market, so to speak? Absolutely. And we, we appreciate the call and, and, and thank you for the question. We do see a lot of different variations of product, whether you're looking at the beef industry or bison, either one. Uh, there are a lot of different opinions out there on grass-fed versus grain-fed or uh, even uh, kind of a hybrid model, whether they're, they're on grass but still, uh, you know, given some grain as a supplement. Um, but those are all preferential, and we try to sit down with tribes as well when we're looking at processing facilities with them, you know, to help them understand the differences uh, in the products and the differences that that feeding uh, can be as far as age of harvest. Um, so all those considerations need to be taken into account when you're looking at meat processing. Uh, but definitely it, it's the preference of the tribe and the farmers and ranchers as to which direction they go. Uh, but we, we definitely try to help them evaluate 
you know, there's differences in yields and there could be differences in marketing and packaging that, that they might want to see or think about uh, before that animal's harvested. So we, we always try to figure out where that animal is going to go after it's harvested before we harvest it so that you know how to package it, you know how to label it, and you know who your uh, end user is or your customer, so to speak. So we want to think about all those things while those animals are alive because once once you harvest those animals and they go into a cooler or a freezer, you really limit yourself on where that product can go. So we try to talk about all that and think through all that ahead of time. Well, Chris, another issue that I hear uh, on my end is is people are just saying that nowadays the size of cattle herds are, are, are a lot larger, and it's a major reason for some of these lower prices that ranchers are receiving when they sell their cattle. And is it true that, that we have too many heads of cattle in, in the U.S.? And if so, is that something you consult uh, with ranchers on as well, how to manage their herds for, for maximum yield in terms of the size? Well, herds are shrinking. I mean, uh, numbers this year specifically, you see the beef beef uh, herd sizes are actually dwindling. Uh, input. Okay. This, costs, I'm sorry, Chris. They're 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 decreasing this year, but there's been a pretty substantial trend over the last five years of of larger herds. A lot more head of cattle in the U.S. Uh, than than previously. Well, the the data that came out even this year is showing that these numbers are actually shrinking, and the number of farmers is actually shrinking. Okay, because I, I, okay, I know that the statistics I read that the average price for cattle up uh, 5% and, and just in terms of, well, that, you know, the heads of cattle that they're actually more, and I'll go ahead and check my notes on that. But anyway, go ahead and finish your, your comments, please. Yeah, you know, costs for sure. I, I can agree with the cost. The, the costs have been uh, increasing steadily uh, and not, not just with since COVID, but it seems like the uh, inflation has really affected uh, the cattle pricing, the retail meat pricing, um, you know, the markets seem to go up and down consistently. Um, it, the fluctuation has a lot to do with these uh, sales prices. And, you know, I hear a lot of different numbers about the actual cost of what the farmer's receiving for the live animal. Uh, and, and there's a lot of uh, data that, is showing the farmers that they can keep the animal longer on the farm and even process themselves, it allows them to keep more of that agricultural dollar internally uh, versus selling that animal at weaning and only taking up a a portion of what that total animal is worth uh, at harvest. Okay. And Chris, just to clarify, so I, I, I was quoting a, a Wall Street Journal article that I read earlier this year. I'm, I'm going to quote, U.S. cattle production grew by about 6 million head to about 95 million head from 2014 through 2019. And although that number and size of, of herds increased, uh, the number of slaughtering plants didn't change that much. So, is that an accurate statistic there that I that I read? Six million head to ninety-five million head increase from twenty fourteen to twenty nineteen. And I'd have to look and see what that number is. That number specifically reflecting the amount of head that were processed. Um, cattle production grew. Doesn't necessarily no. It doesn't refer to the actual the number that were slaughtered. Just the production of U.S. cattle. So definitely want to look into that more um, you know from a uh, from a livestock statistic standpoint as far as beef herds on ranches 
uh, I keep hearing that that number is going down and the, and the herd sizes are shrinking, but there's a lot of different variables for that. And, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of predictions out there, but, you know, it, it's hard to talk about what, what different opinions might be out there on uh, uh, production, but the actual meat processing uh, production where the processors have not, consi- have not grown from the initial uh, meat processors that we've seen around for the last several decades. And that's been a big push since COVID hit where these smaller regional and local plants have been trying to develop over the last couple of years. And, you know, the USDA initiatives that have came out really strong this year continue to promote new development and, you know, upgrading of existing facilities to help provide more processing in these smaller communities uh, versus having it centralized in one of these four major meat packers. Okay. Well, listeners, if you've got a question or a comment for our show today, 1-800-996-2848. That is the number to call. We are talking about new initiatives with regard to small-scale meat processing in Native America. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and there's still time to join our discussion today about native meat processing. Do you or your native community source beef, bison, fish, or pork from a local meat processor? Tell us about it. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now and also from the Flower Hill Institute is Dave Carter. He's speaking with us from Westminster, Colorado. He is a director of the Regional Technical Assistance Program there at Flower Hill. Uh, Dave, welcome to Native America Calling. Glad to be here. Thank you. Dave, you've worked with a number of tribal meat processing operations as a consultant. Please tell us how they've been successful, some of these tribal enterprises. Well, Chris and I have worked together on, on a number of these, and it's interesting to see the others that are, you know, moving forward right now. And I think that we're at a moment in time where there's just a great opportunity for these new diversified processing plants. Uh, Roger talked early on about, you know, what happened during COVID and with the big four processors. And I, I sort of use the analogy of uh, – the Wizard of Oz, that for years we've been told about the efficiencies of, you know, concentrating our, our food system and and uh, how you got these uh, the lower-cost products if you had fewer, larger processors. And along comes COVID, and it's kind of like ripping back the curtain uh, on the Wizard of Oz, and it showed really the inefficiencies of a, of a very concentrated system. And so now... As we move forward, and particularly as tribes are taking a look at food sovereignty and meeting the, the needs of, of their own people, that we have some efficiencies that we can see from these smaller plants. 
and also beyond that, you know, just it's it's addressing the the growing trends that we're seeing around the country. Sean, you mentioned that you sure like to know where your food's coming from, and you're not alone in that. Um, I study a lot of, of market trends through the years, and even before COVID, we saw that more and more people are connecting diet and health. What they eat directly affects how well and how long they live. And then they're starting to connect their diet to the health of the earth, that what we eat and, and the products that we choose affect how um, the earth is taken care of. And so, you know, this is something that I think Native peoples have understood for years is that that connection between all parts of nature and what we eat. But more and more people beyond uh, the Native nations are now understanding that as well. Well, thanks for that background, Dave. And earlier we heard Chris and he talked about, you know, how there's a niche market here for tribes in terms of the approach. And it seems like marketing and advertising are really critical for tribes to stand out in an industry that's so heavily dominated by these large corporate interests that we keep talking about. So uh, how are these final products that tribes can offer consumers? How are they different than what we see in supermarkets now? Well, Chris is spot on when he says, you know, we are not trying to you know, emulate what comes out of the big four. And, and I tell, you know, folks that if you're going to produce a product that's going to go into a major retail chain and sit there next to an undifferentiated product from one of the big four, we're not going to succeed. There is a growing opportunity for these niche products, and particularly in Indian country. Um, you know, my background is, is very heavily involved in organic agriculture and natural meat and the like. And what we're seeing right now is people want authenticity. They want to know, you know, they're suspicious about what we call the greenwashing and, and the claims that come out of, of many of these large companies. Well, when you go out and you talk to the American public about who are the, the, the natural stewards of, of the land and the, the animals, it's what I call tribal equity. Uh, there's brand equity in Indian country with people really trust, you know, the Native Americans on, on, on how they produce the animals and how they the land and how they care for the animals. And that's a huge opportunity for us to develop then these differentiated products that have the authenticity of, the, of what Roger likes to call the naturally native brand. The naturally native brand. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I notice when I go to my supermarket is it's really hard to get that really top grade, the prime beef, right? Like the, the premier steakhouses always sell. And every once in a while, like during the holidays, you might find it. But for the most part, the best you can get is like that choice grade at a supermarket, which isn't what those really good steakhouses offer. But uh, are there any tribes that are looking at some of those really specialty cuts and the really high-grade prime cuts of beef as a potential market for them? Well, we are, and there's a number of tribes that are, you know, taking a look at, at different items. But the thing that we work with, with tribes and all groups on is it's all about cartridge utilization, and that's one of the things that makes the the meat industry so difficult. So difficult is it's not about producing one specialty product. And I've been involved uh, through the years with a couple of projects that, that really stumbled and failed because 
they got excited. It, it was a group of local ranchers. These were non-tribal ranchers, but they got really excited because, uh, you know, a regional steakhouse chain wanted to take all of their strips and, and ribeyes and, and tenderloins. And so they started a project, and, you know, sure enough, they sold those cuts, which is about 7 or 9% of the carcass. And all of a sudden, they're looking around, and they got freezers filling up with chucks and rounds and, and you know, not only to mention the, the byproducts and the hides and all of those things. And so, you know, as we work with groups uh, to talk about some specialized uh, products, we have to remember that we've got to create a market for everything and uh, be able to sell all of that animal. And so that's one of the challenges, but it's what we're working with folks to address. Okay. We've got another caller, David, listening on KUNM in Peralta, New Mexico. David, thanks for calling in today. Hey, hello, Sean. Yeah, great. Thank you for uh, having me. I just want to make a point, possibly a kind of a minor point, but uh, in your numbers of uh, head of cattle increasing, I don't doubt that they have increased, but it seems more realistic to say they went from 6 million to 9.5 million as opposed to 95 million. Because that's it. that would that would be an eighty nine million increase in the head, and I think the numbers seem unrealistic. But that's all I want. That's <laughs> David, my comment. David, thanks for checking me on that. I sure do appreciate your call. And yeah, I think you're right. So I that is an article that I I, I got that statistic out of a Wall Street Journal article from back in March. And yeah, it does not seem like uh, like the right figure. It does seem like an enormously high increase. So thank you for calling me out on that. And I know there does seem to be some debate. I know my producers are sending me some different uh, charts and things like that that are showing cattle and calves inventory uh, from USDA, USDA numbers going down. So I'm not quite sure we're going to get a final answer on that. But yeah, I think that number I quoted earlier was definitely not accurate. So thank you for pointing that out, David. And uh, Dave, I want to ask you a little bit more about, you know, some of these different issues. And again, really exciting and, and knowing that tribes are doing so much wonderful work in this space. And I really like this whole food sovereignty angle and, and having more control and, and more knowledge of, of where these foods are coming from, especially with regard to meat and poultry. Uh, but another thing I, I want to ask you about, because we are seeing this huge push in the country now for plant-based proteins and these meat substances. And I, I am interested, do tribal processors face a risk, do you think, in, in the coming years that consumers will move away from beef, pork, and chicken? Well, I, I feel very confident about the future of real meat. Um, you know, I've taken a look at at uh, some of these products that are coming out, and, and they've got this halo over them that they're good for the environment and, and they're, they're natural and, and the like. Well, if you take a look at the ingredient panel of some of these products, um, I like to say, and, and my background is more heavily in bison than beef, I like to say if, if you, you know, buy a you consume bison, it has three ingredients in it. It has grass, grain, and, and minerals. But you take a look at the ingredient deck of, of some of these uh, products out there, and they've got an you know, a, a ingredient panel that's about 25 ingredients long, and you can't recognize most of them. And um, so, you know, I think that as people begin to realize that, that they, they understand that uh, good meat is, is healthy meat. And I think that there's also a growing recognition that, um, you know, we're in a grassland ecosystem. 
In North America, about 40% of, of the ecosystems that are out there are naturally grassland ecosystems. And those grasslands, I like to call them North America's rainforest because those grasslands are incredibly efficient in capturing carbon and putting it into the soil. In fact, the University of California, Davis, has said that the grasslands are a more resilient uh, carbon trap than forest because uh, the grasses take the, the carbon out and they put it into the soil, whereas a lot of forests, you know, a lot of that carbon's stored above ground, and when the fires come, then it gets released back into the atmosphere. So here are these important grasslands that uh, have Mother Nature has created to capture carbon, but they can't do it by themselves. They've mm. got to have those grazing animals. Uh, I call you know, the, the, the ruminants, bison and beef and the deer and the elk, those are, those are the gardeners that are naturally out there to help manage those grasslands and make them efficient at capturing that carbon. So I think our main challenge, and again, uh, you know, tribes and folks in Indian country have got an incredible opportunity to tell this story that meat produced in the right way, meat processed in the right way is healthy for your family, but it's also a very important part of taking care of our of our uh, environment and addressing climate change. Okay. We've got another caller, David, listening in Fort Hall, Idaho, on KISU. David, thanks for calling in. Good morning. Say, I hear you want to know what to do with some of the byproducts. Brains is a very good byproduct that they've taken off the market due to the mad cow disease here number of years ago seemed like forever but they was great for tanning using in the process of brain tanning deer hides and myself cannot get good cow brains no more and the, neither can the indians and the hide market for them has gone to hell because they cannot get this product to work with so is there anything you can do to alleviate the problem well, let's ask Dave. Dave, uh, what's your answer to that question that David up there in Fort Hall pois, uh, poses with regard to uh, some of these byproducts? Yeah, no, the byproducts issue is is huge. And, you know, when you think about leather, I mean, we've, I just had an opportunity to to sit down with the head of the, of the U.S. Leather Council here a couple months ago, and, and we were talking about this issue. And what was great was he said, you know, that what what people are interested right now in is they want leather with a story. They want to, again, know what's, you know, what's, how is this leather source and how is it processed? What David talked about with the, with the brain tanning is, is a really, uh, to me is a huge opportunity is vegetable tanning, brain tanning. Those are tanning processes that, um, you know, are, are so much more environmentally friendly than the, the, contemporary tanning processes that, that uses so much chrome. And so, yeah, I think if we can address, and, and he's right about the fact that because of the BSE concerns and, and the like, that they've made it very difficult to harvest that material from the animals. But if we can take a look at addressing some of those concerns and getting those supply out, I think that there's a, a big opportunity for developing these um, ecologically friendly processed leather products that would have a story behind them 
that I think the public would really demand. And again, that gets back to the whole utilization of the whole animal, respecting that animal by using every part in every way we can. And Dave, earlier we heard Chris, he talked about labor as being one of the biggest challenges facing tribes. And it's tough to get people working in plants, especially with the pandemic. So I'm interested to know, how can tribal meat processors avoid those those staffing challenges that are so vital to success with these projects? Well, and Chris, again, is spot on, on on that's a huge challenge. And one of the things, when you think about these smaller uh, plants, these smaller facilities that we're putting up is you don't take somebody off the line of, of one of the big four and, and put them into these smaller plants because, you know, these these big processors have have specialized in hiring unskilled labor to do, you know, sort of repetitive motion assembly line tasks. And with these smaller plants, we need people that have skills that can work in every aspect of the plants, that really know how to break down the carcass and package the meat and as well as people to run the plants, to manage, to do the accounting. And one of the things that uh, we've been working on, in fact, with one of the tribes we're working with, is is to uh, have the community college um, own, develop a processing plant as an educational facility so that they can do workforce training in their local community with their local people for that local business. And one of the things that is really a key part of what USD um, is emphasizing with this $1 billion commitment is uh, funds and support for workforce training, particularly working with technical schools and community colleges to put together programs to train the people that need to be in, in those plants and to give them the skills to be workers, not just unskilled labor. And so that's something that we think is a huge opportunity in Indian country is for these tribal colleges and technical schools to really start to put together some workforce training programs. And part of what we're going to do is, is as a coordinator is to try and help them put that together. I know we're running out of time, Sean, and, and I just want to say that, you know, Roger and Chris and I are, are really honored to, to be on your program today and to be a part of this initiative because this technical assistance program that has been Absolutely. put together. Absolutely. Is, and, is, and I, is, I want to thank you all, Roger, Chris, and Dave, for, for what's been such an informative discussion on tribal economic, or, excuse me, tribal economic opportunities in the meat processing industry. Uh, listeners, please join us tomorrow for another discussion uh, about how the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe are taking back 12,000 acres of land in Minnesota. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant, clinical, Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application can be made in three easy steps. More info and application at online.nmhu.edu. CMS program contact local Indian health care provider one 
Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service Kunin. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.